My guest is Stephanie Bolson. Stephanie Bolson is the Washington, D.C. correspondent of the Welt and Welt am Sonntag, arrived there just about 10 days ago. Welcome to the podcast, Stephanie. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Right. Well, I'm going to talk to you a lot about uh, your previous 10 years as the uh, London, UK correspondent for Die Welt and Die Welt am Sonntag, uh, which just came to an end about 10 days ago, as I said. And uh, towards the end, depending on how much time and how much jet lag you're still suffering from, talk to you about your initial take on, on US politics from a maybe European perspective that you will have. So let's start, first of all, then talking about your, your 10 years in London. Uh, I know you're a great Anglophile as well as being a great Anglophone. Um, when you started the job, when you took on the job, when they offered you the job 10 years ago, back in 2013, what did you assume the, the job would be all about? Well, I assumed that um, Britain would certainly be a good place to be to still follow European politics quite a lot because I, I had been in, to Brussels before for four years and I knew how, how important member states are and how much you need to have good networks into the representations in Brussels. And therefore, I was hoping I go to London and then I will have uh, I continue having good relationship with the British government and I will get some good little scoops of what the Brits are planning to do in Brussels. But hey, then um, the first assignment I went to was the so-called Bloomberg speech by David Cameron All back right. in January 2013, where he announced, well, let's have another, another referendum, not only the one in Scotland, let's have another one about our EU membership. And yeah, from there, well, we, we know the story, what happened from there onwards. And then in 2015, um, Cameron won a majority and he had to make good on his promise. And voila, the Brexit referendum happened in 2016. So did you find that in effect, as you start your London career with the Bloomberg speech, January 2013, the Cameron speech, has been basically uh, almost consumed totally by UK EU politics. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it was, I mean, 2014, of course, was dominated by the independence referendum in Scotland. That was the very big issue. And already then you got a sense that this the United Kingdom is in a very raw process of tension and trying to find uh, its own identity. I remember at the time there was a blockbuster, I think on the BBC, something called like, who, Brits, who are we? So you could you could really sense this this soul searching and nation searching, and at the same time the really creaking tension between England and Scotland at times the the referendum in in, in Scotland was quite getting quite nasty at times yeah. beforehand, and then also uh, on the run up to to the actual uh, Brexit referendum, you remember the posters by Nigel Farage and it was it coincided of course with the refugee crisis in Europe and especially in Germany and I think the Leave side very much benefited from the pictures that were coming from from Turkey from the so-called Balkan route and um, yeah there was I mean being in London was very European at the time though many Brits wanted to leave Europe but it was a very European time. Well, it seems like a long time ago. It is 10 years, but just after the Cameron speech or in the in the aftermath, to be more precise, of the Cameron Bloomberg speech, there was this so-called renegotiation, remember, uh, that Cameron undertook with uh, with Brussels about the terms of membership. Um, maybe it's a bit too far away now to remember or go certainly get into the weeds of that negotiation. But did you already sense during that kind of pre-referendum period in the run-up to June 2016 that the UK was... In effect, turning away from Europe. What I definitely 
understood was already then that Britain did not really understand the European Union and how it would work. Mm. So in those days, already it was clear that Britain was overestimating its significance for Europe, that Cameron was convinced that he would get a great deal. And then it very quickly went down to the nitty gritty. I mean, you know this so well of the mm. Brussels bazaar. What mm. can we get out of this? So the Poles wanted something on child benefit and the Germans wanted something on this. And so the whole beautiful project that Cameron had hoped to come back with to London became a very mundane, very nitty gritty, very detailed, very boring and very difficult to sell uh, negotiate negotiation that, yeah, as we know, in the end, wasn't good enough for for the British uh, electorate. And uh, they rejected it and said, that's not good enough, then we rather leave. How did you uh, go about covering those kind of stories in the run of the referendum itself? Was it, did you have to kind of convince headquarters back in Germany that this was an important story? Was it too arcane? Was it too, was it too complex? Was it too boring, as you said just now, to, to, to find a readership for? It was, um, interestingly, um, there was quite an interest in what Cameron had suggested, not so much the detail, but the idea that you could improve Europe, because as you know very well, uh, Germans are not uh, completely happy about the European Union, they never were, while they accept it as the best form of living together on the continent, uh, politically and economically, there's a lot that Germans don't like about the European Union. So there was a lot of interest of, oh, hey, well, wait, um, the Brits have a very good deal anyway. And maybe uh, maybe we can, with the help of the Brits, uh, disintegrate a little bit. Um, but then it was it was something like, oh, they won't do it anyway. There was a big conviction in Germany that, yeah, they will have a referendum, but in the end, the Remain side will win. So until almost a week before the referendum back in June 2016, I, I had to work hard to get my stories into the paper. Um, and you can imagine how easy it was to get the, the stories in after the referendum. <laughs> right. Quickly going back to your time in Brussels where you and I first met. So you were there for, I think, about four years, weren't you? 2009 to 2012 or these three years. Um, it's, it's a different beat. In Brussels, all the quote-unquote foreign correspondents have more or less the same status, uh, you're all uh, away from home, as it were. But you come back to, uh, when you go off to a, a member state capital, especially one as important as, as London, did the, the, the kind of working environment for you change? Did you have to change your, your working methods? Did you find that it was much more of a challenge, we say, to, to know who which people to talk to and which people to, to cover and write about? It was pretty tough. In the beginning in London, I found myself being quite isolated, quite lonely, mm-hmm. um, in the sense that uh, when I was in Brussels, I had an office next to the Berlemont, and right. you would go to the midday. And uh, as I say, it's Erasmus for grown-ups in Brussels, you know, and you have yeah. all the restrictions. And and then being being from a big member state and being from a national um, outlet, I had a lot of access, and I I could choose what what story I was doing. Um, and which institution I would talk to and which side of the institution sometimes. While in London, I remember in one of the first weeks, I would call an NGO, I don't know, I think it was a, an eight um, NGO charity. And the press officer said, are you British media? And I said, no, I'm German media. Sorry, then we don't have time for you. So it, it was it was quite it was quite harsh at times. But um, then I I brought with me one tool which in Brussels works so well, which are background groups. And yeah. I set up a background group with um, 
Irish, Dutch, French, uh, Italian, Spanish, Swiss. And we had a, uh, yeah, we built up this very nice group and uh, we became the place to go to for the British government when they wanted to talk to, quote, the Europeans. Uh, as a group all together collectively rather than having to go one on one. Okay. Yes, exactly. Right. So let's go then to the, the aftermath of the June 2016 referendum. And there's a very well established uh, view out there now. And I want to know if you subscribe to it, Stephanie, whereby you know, Britain, the decline of Britain in terms of the kind of political chaos almost that we see now, uh, started more or less immediately after the June 2016 referendum. Do you, do you agree with that broad analysis? Yes, I do. I, I absolutely do. And uh, the other day I reflected when it was uh, then Liz Truss uh, being ousted and uh, Rishi Sunak coming in, that it was the fifth prime minister in 10 years. And it, um, in my whole life in Germany, I have had five chancellors. Right. So um, that's pretty extraordinary, especially you always have to have in mind that Germans are in awe of Britain. They are in awe of the politics. They are in awe of the history. It's, it's always been a country that Germany looked up to for obvious reasons as well, because the Brits uh, came yeah. in uh, during the Nazi time and uh, liberated Germany. But it it was um, at the same time quirky and eccentric and fun, but also, yeah, just stable. And then with Brexit, this has all changed. So no one can say no Brexit has nothing to do with it. I think Brexit is kind of the original sin of the chaos uh, of the last years in, in Britain, mixed with populism, of course, the euro crisis or rather the, the financial crisis um, and everything else that came after that, then COVID, the war in, in Russia. And this has been made even more difficult for the British government because they have been hung up with Brexit for all those years. And this kind of all that you said historically, at least Germany had for for the for the UK, uh, bit bit by bit, as we're now seven years almost after the referendum, to what extent has that dissipated and disappeared? It has. Well, I, I would be careful here because I'm I'm absolutely sure that the German government uh, continues to work very well with the British yeah. government. There's a lot of respect. I think trust has been a problem. Trust has been destroyed uh, between London and Brussels, but also between uh, London and Berlin. Nevertheless, they work together, especially now and very closely because of uh, the war in Ukraine. Um, but, but I do think that, at least in the German public, the image of Britain has been damaged a lot. And that was partly because German media reported, especially on Boris Johnson, in a kind of caricature way. Yeah. And or the Spiegel. Spiegel had twice uh, um, a title with uh, Banana Republic Britain, mm. which I do not agree with. I think I think that's not the right way to to report on on Britain because it's so stereotyping and generalizing. It is that doesn't it's not fair, but um, it certainly has damaged very much the the image of Britain in Germany. Well, we've had now to let me maybe defend my country a rather more stable situation, arguably, since Rishi Sunak became prime minister uh, toward the end of last year. And again, a similar question. Do you, do you agree with this notion now that British politics is, is now more stable, even to the point of being rather boring, but it is certainly less chaotic than it was for the previous six, six and a half years or so? Yeah, definitely. And um, I could sense that also in in the interest in Berlin, in stories from, from Britain, especially political stories, because during the uh, Boris Johnson years and Liz Truss, obviously that was just a month and a bit, but there was a lot of demand as soon as Suna came in. Um, I maybe wrote two or three more stories and that was that. 
Now, um, I I must say how he handled the Northern Ireland Protocol question. Yeah. That was pretty. That was pretty cool. And um, I uh, I happened to have my farewell hosted by Steve Baker, wow. um, and uh, who is the Northern Ireland Minister, and as we know, was a crucial person yeah. in the whole turmoil around Theresa May and and Brexit. And I thought it was interesting at my at my farewell, I did a little speech and I said, um, well, we might now see a sixth prime minister falling because of Brexit. And he looked at me and shook his head. <laughs> and from that, I took, OK, right. I think Sunak might be safe because, as you know, if Steve Baker and others had said that that deal with the Europeans doesn't fly, we're going to vote it down. It would have become very uncomfortable for Sunak. As you know, there's a lot of enthusiasm maybe slightly premature, maybe misplaced, but anyway, it's there that, that this is the beginning of a new era of more cordial more, and more constructive relations, UK-EU, on the back of this so-called Windsor framework. Again, do you, do, you, do you share that enthusiasm or do you think we're being slightly premature in jumping to that kind of conclusion? Well, it it really depends on um, how how things go going forward with the Sunak government. Um, I think there is always... The possibility that part of the Tory parliamentary group will will play up. So I think as long as Boris Johnson is around, there is always a certain risk that um, things might become tumultuous again. And while I do think that, I mean, certainly Sunak has a majority for the deal uh, with Brussels, they can always make it difficult for him. And then don't forget there is an election looming in 2024. Mm. And uh, the Tory party will have a very close look at uh, how things at the polls and how successful Sunak can be. And I still think, I mean, it's more unlikely now, but if Boris Johnson sees any opportunity to come back into the game, he will try to. Do you think that um, we could now start talking more constructively about very specific areas, the UK and EU, where there can be cooperation, like obviously the rather now totemic um, horizon Europe uh, research and science program is that something an example of something where the where the UK be, could be brought back in or the, are there still question marks over even that kind of uh, project being uh, having UK involvement I, I think both sides are almost desperate to pick up those things these corporations especially horizons but horizon but also other uh, things that uh, and and improve the TCA improve the relationship whether it's uh, for example well trade especially trade and trade will become as you know more difficult again once the the British side will finally introduce checks for goods coming from the continent into mm. into GB. So there's a lot of things um, to sort out. Again, I think there is certainly um, a kind of wariness in all the capitals, mm. whether it's uh, the Dutch or the French or the Germans, because they are a bit like, well, watch the space, wait and see. Yeah. Do the Brits really deliver? Because they have had now quite a... a a relationship that has been at times disappointing. Well, you mentioned, didn't you, the absence of trust, the problem of trust historically. Do you think there's still a, a kind of nagging feeling amongst in, or most, if not all, member states that we, the EU27, cannot really still now trust the United Kingdom? Certainly, there's still there. What I thought was interesting in the last month I was in uh, London was that I saw a lot of German social democrats coming to London oh, wow. and uh, re revitalizing uh, old uh, relationship with Labour. Mm. So I get the sense in Berlin, they clearly see the Tories going out and Labour coming in. 
labor being not necessarily much more pro-European because that comes at a co uh, political cost for uh, Keir Starmer. So he's very cautious about being too pro-European. But I think Labour is definitely seen as the more reasonable partner in London. And I thought it was interesting how intense relationships and contacts and lots of uh, German government representatives traveling to London and not meeting representatives of the government, but of the opposition. Right. Well, let's move in this last part of our little chat, Stephanie, to your your new role, your new empire, uh, Washington, D.C., uh, and the more broadly United States. I know you've only been, you've only been there a, a few days so far but what are your what are your first impressions your first professional impressions of your new your new gig it's big <laughs> <laughs> it's a very big story and uh, i can see that already before i arrived i saw the agenda of who's coming to washington so last friday um olaf scholz was here he met uh, joe biden in uh, in the oval office um the next day um i went to see donald trump at the CPEC, that's this conservative uh, conference, wow. which was interesting in, as such because uh, Ron DeSantis was not there, nor Mike Pence was there. So it was Trump, Trumpomania all over. Um, he, he talked for two hours. Uh, it was it was quite wow. intense. And this is, I mean, this is going to be so exciting to see who is going to be the candidate on the uh, for the Republicans. And then, of course, this week, uh, Friday, Ursula von der Leyen will come here. She, uh, she talking about, well, among other things, Ukraine, but also about the IRA era, um, yeah. about cooperation. So you, you you just you see that Washington is the center, the political center of of the globe, and it's it's very exciting to be here. It's maybe a bit too specific, but you mentioned the the Inflation Reduction Act, the IRA. As we call it rather weirdly in 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 English, uh, but is it something that uh, it is maybe slightly misunderstood? Many people say it's going to be a, a major source of contention between the the United States and the European Union. Others say that there's a slight element of over overreaction and that we should uh, make let the the IRA take a certain course, or on the contrary, we should we the European Union now uh, have our own version of Inflation Reduction Act, uh, pumping money into to member states industries where they need it especially for a green recovery do you have i know you've as i stress you've only been here a few there a few days do you sense issues of tension around things like the ira yeah certainly there there are tensions and especially seen from from the german government and i spoke to some german government representative uh, recently and they do see that german companies are already making um jumping to this opportunity and are setting up production lines in the US because mm. it's very attractive because of the subsidies they are getting. Um, and there is the worry as much in the German government as obviously in the European Commission of a kind of decoupling. I mean, you're yeah. talking about decoupling from Russia and China, but you don't want definitely to decouple from the United States. Yeah. And um, this this is, uh, this is something that I think Brussels and Berlin are very worried about. And it's interesting to see what might be the outcome if there is some memorandum of understanding about cooperating on on things like raw materials that then might somehow make the ERA, IRA, IRA, or however you call yeah. it, yeah. Uh, less harmful than than it might be. And it it uh, it also shines the light on. Yes, the transatlantic partnership is certainly so much better than it was uh, under when when Donald Trump was the president. And listening to him on Saturday, it was a bit scary how he 
He said things like, who doesn't pay it will not be protected by the US from Russia. And this very, I mean, we, we have heard that all again uh, already back in 2017. But it it is a quite a bleak outlook with the idea that Donald Trump is coming back. But then again, you have Joe Biden and Joe Biden as well looks first yeah. and foremost as at the US. Of course he does. And uh, that has now consequences for uh, European business. Yeah. Uh, maybe one final question, Stephanie, to see if I can try and magically bring various strands of your of your career into this last question. So you made it pretty clear that transatlantic relations, uh, EU-US, extremely important, are uh, under stress, obviously, but then I think both sides realise they have to work together wherever possible. And then there's a small matter of the United Kingdom. Uh, the UK historically likes to think it has a special relationship. Most people scoff at that outside the, the United Kingdom, but the UK, as you know, holds, uh, holds that idea very dearly for obvious reasons. Do you see a, a situation, again, stressing you've only been in Washington for a few days now, uh, that the, the UK can somehow insert itself into appropriate dialogues going on so far only between the UK, uh, between the United States rather, and the European Union? Or do you think that it'll be in effect ostracized for some time to come from those kind of discussions? I think uh, the the UK has been having a hard time for quite some time to really live up to the so-called special relationship. And uh, you, you could see that in, uh, especially over Brexit, um, more so obviously during the Obama years and then again with the Biden years in between Trump obviously was thought that Brexit was a great idea. So in that sense, superficially, um, relations were better. But you saw that Boris Johnson was not very successful getting that very quick US trade deal. It didn't happen at all. Because at the end of the day, there are lots of nice and big and loud words, but uh, the substance is something different. What I find quite funny is that um, I just got an invite to the event of the spring, which is next week. Anyway, on the 16th of March, which is the place to be and the event to be is St. Patrick's Day. Right. (laughs) And that is at the Irish Embassy. And I think while you talk a lot about the special relationship between London and uh, Washington, the relationship between Dublin and Washington, especially now with Joe Biden, that's the one to watch. And I think we have seen time and again how influential it is. Okay, we have to leave it there. Stephanie Bolson, thank you very much for your time. Thank you.